0: For patients with severe short stature, despite the advent of genetic testing, it's important to not lose sight of thorough history taking and examination skills followed by appropriate testing. Do you know the key challenges in diagnosis and management of patients with short stature conditions? Keep listening to find out. This is the first podcast episode in a two-part series on patients with rare growth disorders with short stature. In this episode, we focus on differentiating between growth hormone deficiency, or GHD, and primary IGF-1 deficiency, or otherwise known as growth hormone resistance. This podcast is an initiative of core 2 ad and supported by an independent educational grant from Ibsen. My colleague, Tracy Geshe, will moderate this podcast episode. Thanks,
1: Tonka. I'm delighted to introduce to you two experts in the field of pediatric endocrinology. Firstly, Professor Bakkerjau, who has worked in growth disorders for decades and has been involved in research and clinical management of children with severe growth disorders, including primary IGF deficiency. I'm also joined by Joachim Wolfler, who, since the start of his academic career, has had a major interest in growth disorders, first as the Head of Paediatric Endocrinology at the University of Bonn in Germany, and since 2019 as the Chair of Paediatrics at the University of Erlangen. Welcome to both of you. So perhaps I can ask you first, Professor Bakuyao, to explain to us why this topic is important. And also, could you tell us the key challenges when diagnosing patients with short stature?
2: Let me go immediately to the second part of your question, the key challenge is always to uh, make an early diagnosis. It's still with the uh, advancement in uh, our diagnostic abilities, with the uh, advancement in in molecular uh, genetics, we still see many patients refer to us relatively late. so it's you know of utmost importance to make an early diagnosis for a child who is showing worrisome growth. And on top of that, we need to make the correct diagnosis so we can start with the correct, appropriate treatment.
1: Thank you. So I'd like to bring Professor Wolfler into the discussion now and ask you, if I may, um, to comment on the key challenges regarding the management of these patients.
3: As you said, one of my interests for a long time have been growth disorders, but this comes with a drawback that. For many, many years, we had only limited therapeutic possibilities, which is mainly growth hormone available. And we are now in a situation where we have enlarged our portfolio and where even more growth-promoting drugs are in the pipeline. So, as Philippe said, the challenge is, is to make a correct diagnosis. And even now, where we have somewhat more therapeutic agents in hand, have the correct diagnosis which then leads to a precise therapy or management of this patient.
1: So before we dive deeper into the diagnosis and management of patients with growth hormone deficiency or severe primary IGF-1 deficiency, let's perhaps start with the prevalence, incidence, and presentation of these patients with rare growth disorders. So Professor Bakung, Yao, could you tell us more about the incidence and prevalence of these patients please?
2: Yes, so we have a fairly good idea of the prevalence of growth hormone deficiency. We think it's somewhere around one in 4,000. With respect to the diagnosis of severe primary IGF-1 deficiency, it's a little hard to give an exact prevalence. I've seen numbers of about one to 10 in a million. What I can say is that growth hormone deficiency is much, much more common than severe primary IGF-1 deficiency. For the latter diagnosis, there's probably several hundreds of patients worldwide, but it's an uncommon diagnosis compared to the diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency. I would also like to stress that for both diagnoses, respectively for growth hormone deficiency and severe primary IGF-1 deficiency, there is a spectrum of presentation. And for example, in the past, When we would diagnose somebody with severe primary IGF-1 deficiency, this would involve the more severe forms of growth delay in these patients, whereas more recently, we have discovered that there is a spectrum to severe primary IGF-1 deficiency with more milder presentations, which we like to call the non-classic forms of primary IGF-1 deficiency.
1: Thank you. So we are dealing very much with uh, a rare disease for these patients. So, Professor Wolfler, is there any treatment available for these two conditions at this time?
3: If you look at growth disorders in global, we are mainly distinguishing between replacement therapies on the one hand, where a hormone or growth factor is missing or lacking, and on the other hand, supraphysiological therapies. Classic example for uh, replacement therapy is growth hormone deficiency. Where we are replacing the missing growth hormone with recombinant somatropin. And additionally, this has been done by daily injections of growth hormone, subcutaneous injections. But recently, GH preparations have been developed that are now approved for the treatment in children with GHD, where it's only required to inject once weekly, so long acting preparations or long acting growth hormones. Another example of replacement therapy could be SPI GFD. Here, the lacking IGF 1 can be substituted by treatment with mechasermin. However, since in many cases of SBIGFD, the classical forms, a blockade in the growth hormone receptor mediated signaling is the cause of SBIGFD, IGF 1 replacement can only improve the deficiency of IGF 1 but not ameliorate the IGF independent effects of growth hormone signaling. And in addition to those two conditions, we have a number of therapies available for supraphysiological therapies, which are in patients with short stature associated with other syndromal disorders, such as Turner syndrome, shocks deficiency, children born SGA, lacking growth hormone, uh, lacking catch up growth, and others. And last but not least, we are now in a position where certain skeletal dysplasias can be treated by growth promoting agents. That shares vosorotide, a CMP analogue, which is now approved for the treatment for chondroplasia.
1: Okay, thank you. So for the purposes of the podcast today, we're going to focus on the rare short-stature disorders um, which have a treatment available. So we're going to be focusing on growth hormone deficiency and severe primary IGF-1 deficiency for the rest of the discussion. So in order to understand the differences properly, could I ask you, Professor Bacaljau, to provide us with an overview of the growth hormone IGF-1 signaling axis?
2: What I like to describe as the growth hormone IGF-1 growth plate axis is quite a complex physiologic system. But in summary, when we secrete uh, endogenous growth hormone or, or somatropin from the pituitary somatotropes, growth hormone circulates in the body and will stimulate the production of insulin-like growth factor 1, IGF-1. There are two components of the IGF-1 production. There's first the production of IGF-1 by the liver, and this uh, we we call the endocrine uh, component of IGF-1. And this IGF-1 circulates in the system bound to binding proteins, uh, of which the more important one is insulin-like growth factor 1 binding protein 3, or IGFBP 3 Together with IGF-BP3, the acid-label subunit and IGF-1 form a ternary complex that allows the IGF-1 to circulate in the body and reach the different uh, organs and tissues. Most of growth hormone's growth-promoting actions are via the production of IGF-1, what is most important in the IGF 1 production is the amount of IGF 1 that gets produced locally in the tissue at the tissue level. And we call that the autocrine or paracrine effects of IGF 1 that are produced locally at the cellular level. And that is also true at the growth plate level, where IGF 1 and growth hormone both have growth promoting actions.
1: That's great. Well, thank you for that nice overview. So, turning to you now, Professor Wolfler, can I ask you to explain how these patients tend to present clinically? And we already heard before Professor backel Yao mentioned that there's different grades of severity and more of a a spectrum of disease, so perhaps you could elaborate on that a little bit more for us, please?
3: Yeah, in theory, you would expect that it's quite an easy and complete different clinical phenotype of the two patients. However the distinction between GHD and primary IGFD can be more challenging than expected. As Philippe said, there's a continuum, and there's a spectrum, and this holds true as well for the production of growth hormone, where we have patients lacking complete growth hormone secretion, towards normal secretion, and in patients with acromal, even enlarged growth hormone secretion. And on the other hand, we have growth hormone sensitivity, which can be completely abolished by growth hormone receptor mutations, or which can be normal. And in both cases, GHD and sbi the more severe forms can be detected or identified more easily. For example, in congenital GHD, this is not unfrequent part of combined pituitary hormone deficiency, where the patient can exhibit features such as hypoglycemia or cholestasis. And in patients with LaRon syndrome, postnatally, those can have certain uh, phenotypical features such as frontal bossing with a prominent forehead, acromicria with a small face, small hands, or small feet. And in both cases, I would say the prosomon insensitivity cases with a severe form tend to have a more pronounced growth retardation earlier than in GHD. However, if we are looking in the less severe forms, this becomes much more difficult. Patients with partial GHD and patients with less severe form of primary igf may present with rather comparable growth patterns. And biomarkers such as IGF-1, the endocrine form of IGF-1, as Philip just explained, do not really help to distinguish between those two forms. That means that both growth pattern and the biochemical profile in these less severe affected patients with either powerful THD or SBHFD can look quite comparable, and it's finally the result of a growth hormone stimulation test that more or less arbitrarily is dividing into two forms. Genetics might help distinguish a little bit if you find a pre-published growth hormone receptor mutation where you know there's a lack of growth hormone receptor signaling that might help you. However, there's sometimes uh, you can stumble across mutations which are not part of the GHIGF1 axis where you produce more questions than answers. Hmm.
1: Okay, so Professor Bacheliao, could you tell us how you approach the diagnostic workup of these patients?
2: When I see a patient with short stature and or growth failure, and I need to work that patient, evaluate that patient, I put a lot of value in uh, performing a very good, very uh, detailed clinical exam. But that's preceded by taking a detailed history and um, finding out more about the different organ systems in the patient. So we call that a review of systems that needs to be performed. So together with a detailed history, a detailed review of systems and a well-performed physical exam, one can then decide on particular screening tests that may be helpful. Physical exam is important. Oxology should be very detailed. We should look at not only height and weight, but also body segment measurements. And after that, one can start considering screening for growth hormone deficiency or primary IGF-1 deficiency, probably first by uh, obtaining a serum insulin-like growth factor 1 concentration, and IGF-1 concentration. Sometimes we also measure an IGF-BP3 as a screening test for growth hormone deficiency. And so IGF-BP3 is rarely low in normal short children. So both tests are appropriate screening tests. IGF-1 is probably the preferred one. IGF-BP3 may be helpful in younger children.
1: So can you elaborate more on that in terms of how you go about differentiating between patients with short stature who have growth hormone deficiency and those that have short stature caused by primary IGF-1 deficiency.
2: In children, when we have a suspicion that they may have growth hormone deficiency, performing a growth hormone stimulation test and evaluating the peak concentration with various stimuli can be helpful to confirm the diagnosis. To make a diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency, one usually deals with a low IGF-1 concentration. And as confirmation, uh, performing a growth hormone stimulation test or a growth hormone provocation test may be helpful and may teach us more about the patient's ability to secrete growth hormone. Moreover, One cannot make a diagnosis of growth hormone insensitivity or growth hormone resistance or primary IGF-1 deficiency without performing a growth hormone stimulation test during which we should see a normal peak level, peak concentration of growth hormone. And finally, a quick word about the IGF-1 generation test which some people recommend to perform uh, if we suspect the patient has growth hormone resistance or primary IGF-1 deficiency, there are also caveats related to the IGF-1 generation test. It is very difficult to assign reliable cutoff values. The test consists of the administration of giving growth hormone before and after growth hormone, we measure IGF-1. And we see, we evaluate how much IGF-1 can be generated by exposing the patient to to relatively high doses of growth hormone. There are a variety of protocols with different doses of growth hormone, different duration of the IGF-1 generation test. And in general, it's not a helpful test for patients who have mild to moderate degrees of primary IGF-1 deficiency. It can be helpful to confirm Severe primary age of one deficiency, because in that situation, the age of one generation is minimal.
1: Can I bring you back in now, Professor Wolflow, and ask you, what, what do you think are the main challenges that you experience when diagnosing these patients with short stature?
3: It is important to go one step back, because one of the problems that we are still facing is a very late or too late age of diagnosis. And who is important there? This is the primary care physician who is in charge of what Philip just told us, who has to deal with many patients presenting with growth retardation with a variety of disorders which are not primarily caused by endocrine factors. Growth is an excellent biomarker of health and disease. So for the PCP, it is important to take, as he said, a careful history, being aware for certain clues for medical history and physical exam, and... For example, deviation from uh, family target height should be noted early and the PCP should be noted to look in that. In physical exams, certain dysmorphic features can aid in finding an underlying syndrome and to measure uh, the proportions of the patients might be required to identify that because you cannot always trust your eyes and think you identify this proportionate short stature. But if you're going back to earlier identifying patients with GHD or SBI-GFD, is important that the PCP separates the wheat from the chaff. Uh, and, and this remains a major challenge. We just had our national meeting uh, of pediatric endocrinology last week uh, in Germany, and there was one analysis of a national uh, registry. What we learned that, that we became better in the diagnosis of GHD the mean diagnostic age is now around six years in patients with idiopathic growth hormone deficiency, and organic forms are detected somewhat earlier. And the same holds true for SBI GFD. We published an analysis of the EU registry data that showed that treatment in non-Laron patients became a little bit better. Is now around eight or eight point five years of age. There's Laron patients which are identified earlier had an Earlier diagnosis and subsequently an earlier treatment start. So, we need to educate our PCPs, our pediatric endocrine colleagues, that they are identifying patients earlier and treat them earlier.
1: Okay, that's a strong message. One of the advantages, I think, of having you both on the call is obviously we can get the US and an EU perspective. So, with that in mind, Professor Wolf, can you perhaps Explain, do you take the same diagnostic approach in, in Europe? Are there any other considerations that the listeners need to be aware of?
3: I would say regarding SPIGFP, there's only minor differences between the Atlantic. So the definition in the U.S. is a little bit different in terms that uh, in the U.S. Um, a level of circulating IGF-1 below a cutoff of minus 3 SDS this is required. There's in Europe... We need or we define SBIGFD as, as a circulating IGF-1 concentration below the 2.5th percentile. Otherwise, it's pretty much the same. However, this is not true regarding a diagnosis of GHD. For a diagnosis of GHD, diagnostic criteria vary greatly between countries, not only between the Atlantic or the US and Europe, but even within Europe.
1: Okay, so lots of regional differences. That's uh, That's interesting to know. You also mentioned earlier, Professor Wolfler, about genetic testing, the role of genetic testing. So, you know, P- Professor Backeljauw, perhaps you could talk to us a little bit more about that. Um, you know, what is the role of genetic testing in this diagnostic process? And when in the diagnostic workup, would it be considered?
2: If we have a presumptive biochemical or clinical diagnosis of a uh, disorder for which genetic testing is available, it's very appropriate to confirm that diagnosis. By genetic testing, and that certainly is the case for primary IGF-1 deficiency. If a patient presents with severe primary IGF-1 deficiency, one can have enough clinical indications that to justify genetic analysis to, for example, confirm an abnormality in the growth hormone receptor gene. But in many cases, the workup does not reveal a specific diagnosis, either clinically or biochemically. And genetic screening may may be quite helpful, and it has been progressively more and more introduced in our clinical practice. We are often looking for a monogenic growth disorder. We are more likely to diagnose a monogenic uh, growth disorder and find an abnormality if the patient has a more severe form of short stature, if there is, for example, consanguinity in the family. If the child has short stature, but also has a genetic uh, condition, uh, a syndrome, a genetic syndrome that can be um, diagnosed, and in cases of autosomal dominant short stature, uh, we are also more likely to uh, find um, a diagnosis of a monogenic growth disorder. In many cases, though, genetic testing will not find uh, a specific cause. And we may run into um, what we call um, genetic variants of unknown significance, where there is not enough proof that the um, mutation or the genetic abnormality that is found on testing is uh, pathogenic. Clinicians need to be aware of this.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's move on now from um, diagnosis more to treatment. So we've already touched on the fact that there are um, different treatments available for patients with growth hormone deficiency and primary IGF-1 deficiency. So, Professor Wolfler, could you tell us about the treatment for growth hormone deficiency, please?
3: Growth hormone deficiency is treated now since about... Um, the first patient was described by Maurice Rabin in 1958, so it's about, uh, calculating, 75 years already. But he used a human growth hormone which was extracted from cadavers and since 85, 1985, we were in the position that we have recombinant growth hormone available, uh, which is typically applied by subcutaneous injection, and which made the management more available worldwide. We have a relatively solid and robust knowledge on the safety and efficacy of daily growth hormone in GHD. And we do know that if we have a proper diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency that is made early, that growth hormone is able to normalize the growth of this individual child without major adverse events, adverse effects. In about two years, as I mentioned earlier, our toolbox got a little bit larger. We have several long-acting growth hormone formulations which are now approved by EMA and uh, FDA as well. And the hope for that long-acting growth hormone preparations is that by reducing the need of injections from daily to weekly, that this will improve patient adherence. This has been shown in other areas such as in diabetes. However, currently we do not really know whether that will be the case in growth hormone deficiency. We have to prove that first. And I would say with the availability of more varieties of treatments available, it is the task of the clinician to counsel the families and the caregivers what might be the best solution for the individual child. One criteria might be patient age. As I said, adherence is hoped to be better in long-acting growth hormone formulations and adolescents are at a slightly higher risk of being non-adherent. And it might be that these will be cases where long-acting growth hormone formulations uh, might be used earlier. On the other hand, we have patients where I would be a little bit more conservative Since we have a good safety profile in daily growth hormone actions and one of the patient groups where I would be conservative are pediatric cancer survivors. So we know that the physiology and the pharmacokinetics of long-acting growth hormone differ from what we see in daily uh, growth hormone application and in normal physiology. So I would argue that in these patients, I would be more hesitant and stick probably more to daily growth hormone until we know more.
1: And what about the treatment for severe primary IGF-1 deficiency? Can you tell us about the safety and efficacy of that treatment, please?
2: So with regards to the treatment of individuals who have severe primary IGF-1 deficiency, the approved medication is recombinant human uh, insulin-like growth factor 1, recombinant human IGF-1 or sermon. And uh, this preparation is also administered subcutaneously, but it's usually administered twice daily. The maximum dose is 120 microgram per kilogram per dose. Again, administered twice daily. And when patients are started on this treatment, they usually titrate it gradually to that uh, dose as they tolerate it. It improves um, linear growth in these patients from an efficacy perspective. We treated a cohort of uh, 21 individuals with severe primary IGF-1 deficiency in the uh, 1990s and early 2000s for a mean treatment duration of just under 11 years. And that the height velocity, which at baseline before treatment was about 3.1 centimeters per year, improved to 7.5 centimeters per year in the first year of treatment. And the delta-height Z-score, delta-height SDS, at the end of treatment was anywhere from plus 1.6 to plus two standard deviations, depending on whether patients had had their puberty delayed uh, or not. And so when you look at those data, we can definitely say that Idrofon therapy is efficient and is the only therapy to which these patients will respond. But it's obvious that the response to IGF 1 therapy in severe primary IGF 1 deficiency is not the same as the response we observe in growth hormone deficient patients who get growth hormone replacement therapy. From a safety perspective, it's also somewhat different. Patients with severe primary IGF 1 deficiency, such as Laurent syndrome patients, have as as a baseline uh, problems with low blood sugar, with hypoglycemia in at least 40% of the patients. And uh, so this hypoglycemia may be aggravated with, with recombinant human IGF-1. Uh, so we need to pay attention to this, especially in the most severely affected and the youngest patients. Um, we need to um, plan the uh, administration of IGF-1 um, with uh, the intake of a meal. The patients are also at a higher risk with IGF-1 therapy for the development of increased intracranial pressure. And then I probably should mention a recent warning from the FDA that individuals both within the indication of severe primary IGF-1 deficiency and outside of the indication uh, when they were treated with um, recombinant tube IGF-1, there was an increased incidence of both benign and malignant tumors via post-marketing uh, analysis. So IGF-1 therapy is uh, therefore contraindicated in patients who have an active or suspected neoplasm or any condition that has an increased risk for a neoplasm with a known increased risk.
1: And Professor Wolfler, how do you manage patients with primary IGF one deficiency? And and you know, is the IGF one treatment indicated for all cases?
3: Internationally, I would say the approach to patients with SPIGFV differs as well. So, if I look into the Pediatric Endocrine Society guideline from the US, if you have patients with non-classical forms where the IGF one Deficiency is not explained by, for example, a growth hormone receptor mutation. The PPS guideline recommends to start with a trial of growth hormone first before initiating Igf1 in these patients. In Germany, this would be off-label; we wouldn't be able to do that. So, taken together, yes, uh, I would carefully counsel the family about the efficacy and the safety of the uh, of Igf1 treatment, but. In addition, I would underline the importance of collecting the patient's data in a registry that we learn more and have a better database uh, to counsel these patients.
1: Absolutely. So thank you. I think we've had a very comprehensive discussion. So I'd like to thank you both very much for sharing your insights with our listeners on this topic. We always like to end our episodes by providing the listener with the key clinical messages of your discussion for them to take away. So can I ask you, Professor Wolfler, what would be your main clinical messages that you'd like our listeners to remember after this podcast?
3: As we discussed for both GHG and spi the late age diagnosis and the late treatment start is a problem. And we already talked that we need to educate our community, pediatric endocrine specialists as well as primary care physicians to make an earlier diagnosis. So this is important. And with the availability of more than one treatment option for growth hormone deficiency, we have to make a comprehensive counseling of the families. What are the advantages regarding safety, uh, safety knowledge, and what are the potentials of the newer drugs available? And as I just said, we need to collect the data of the treated patients in our databases to learn more about long-term safety and long-term efficacy.
1: Thank you. And Professor Baklia, have you anything to add
2: to that? As I've alluded to, I think for patients who present with severe short stature, despite the gradual introduction of genetic testing, I think it's still important not to lose sight of having good history taking skills and good examination skills, followed by appropriate testing. I think we further need to have a good understanding of all the caveats that come with biochemical testing as well as genetic testing. And um, I think we should uh, prescribe treatments within the limits of the indication for both growth hormone deficiency and severe primary IGF one deficiency. And as physicians, we need to be aware that the caregivers should be well informed about the treatment the expectations they can have from an efficacy perspective and the safety.
1: Thank you again for this episode. We've learned a lot in the discussion on rare growth disorders with short stature. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Tracy. If you like this podcast episode and want to find out more on short stature and particularly severe primary IGF-1 deficiency, then look on the Rare Diseases Medical Conversation podcast channel from the core to ad medical education account for the other episode with Professor Helen Storr and Professor Andrew Dower. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel, rate this episode, or inform your colleagues about it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast is an initiative of CORE2AD and developed by PE Connect, a group of international experts working in the field of endocrinology and pediatrics. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts, and they do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the PE Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Courtois website.